on this episode of Upon Upon a Hill. Period 3 notes. Imperial Wars, Colonial Protest, and all the way to the Revolutionary War. Ready? So we're going to start with the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. Trick question. It wasn't between the French and the Indians. Um, we have to look at this from the British perspective, right? right? There, We are British colonies in North America. So from the British view, the French are provoking. They are encouraging the fighting because they're building forts all throughout the Ohio River Valley. And what the French and Indian War was about was the halt the westward growth of the British colonies. All right, they, that's what the French pre, uh, were presenting as a resistance to the westward expansion that we were trying to accomplish from the British point of view. All right, so what happens is in 1754 is we have the Albany Plan of Union, Benjamin Franklin, reestablishing that intercolonial government that we had back in the New England Confederation. And the real basis of it was they needed a system to recruit troops and to collect taxes for the common defense of all the colonies. It never really took effect, but it was an important precedent for the future. All right? And um, you know, the, the conclusion of the war is really settled once again with a, the Peace of Paris. It's a British victory, 1763. And the significant outcome is simply that the Great, uh, Great Britain acquires French Canada and Spanish Florida, and France cedes to Spain the, what we know later as the Louisiana Territory, all claims west of the Mississippi River. So the immediate effects of the war is that Britain will remain the unchallenged uh, force in uh, North America, and it will also continue to have naval supremacy throughout the world. It's also going to change how British and the colonists are going to view each other. So after the war, the way the British view the colonists were kind of like these incompetent, ungrateful, and unable uh, participants um, that were kind of not really defending themselves on the new frontier. Colonies mm. did not contribute enough, the British thought, to the war effort yeah. uh, because they lacked the amount of people and or money. They were constantly kind of whining and you know relying on mm. mercantile. Here we go again. You need right. us to help you. you the know. colonial view was that they had proud involvement and that they developed some sort of confidence and, uh, and, and organization as a result. Of this is of this conflict. Yeah, but the other important thing is the reorganizing of this empire uh, that is happening after the Seven Years' War, and salutary neglect that we talked about in previous podcasts. This is abandoned. The British now realize, hey, we've we've let the American colonies alone for too long. We need to be more forceful of our policies and to reestablish control and order. Wars are very costly. We need to raise money. We need to. Um, pay for what their protection was needed, so we need money for the troops on this new frontier, 
right? And American colonies need to bear the cost of maintaining this empire, not just in North America, but everywhere. That's the crucial element. And the first kind of major test of this new policy was the Pontiac's Rebellion. So there was an Indian uh, named Chief Pontiac, very similar to Metacom and King Philip's War, mm -hmm. that led an alliance of Amerindians on a major attack in the Ohio River Valley. The British will send, of course, regular troops to suppress the uprising rather than colonial forces. And they're going to try to kind of um, uh, quickly settle this, this, this fight because they just had a fight with France and other Native American tribes through the Proclamation of 1763. It was an effort to stabilize the western frontier. They promised these tribes that they will prohibit settlements west of the App uh, Appalachian Mountains um, as long as the natives backed off. They agreed. The colonists are going to react with anger and defiance. Yeah, so the, the crucial element there is the British, once again, it's reinforcing their view that the colonists are needed their help all the time. We're not going to we're going to send in our regular troops. We're not going to send in the colonial forces because you won't be able to handle it. And that is why the proclamation is established, because they're costing them too much financially. They're costing them too much in terms of supervision. So you are no longer allowed to settle west of this line because you're causing too much of a nuisance for us. And the English statesmen brokering this deal, they're looking at it from an abstract eagle eye viewpoint. They're mm -hmm. not on the ground. They don't understand the you know, the, the effects of this happening to the colonists, right? And the they farming just, issues we were talking about earlier. Right, uh, in the, right, in the, south, the southern and, and the New England colonies. So the way the British are going to do it is just let's make a deal quickly, as, as quick, as soon as possible. The colonists, well, you're actually making a deal with the very enemy that we fought a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So there becomes this... Um, this, this form of betrayal or the sense of you're really not doing things in our interests. And the proclamation of 1763, as well as Pontiac's Rebellion, really kind of starts to agitate the tensions between the colonists and the British. Yeah, so that builds into what we know as new revenues and new regulations, right? 1764, crucial element known as the Sugar Act. Their duties are taxes on foreign sugar. It's a more strict enforcement of the Navigation Acts that we had mentioned in previous podcasts. They wanted to crack down on the smuggling. If the British aren't being part of the transactions, they are losing out on money. So everything that needs to go through them, and they're going to have smugglers that are going to be more uh, strictly enforced by trying them in admiralty courts by crown-appointed judges. No juries, not your common citizens of the American colonies. No, crown-appointed judges in the uh, American colonies will determine the fate of these smugglers. And this is on this is on par with like a military court. Imagine if you committed a crime today and instead of being tried with the jury of your peers, you're gonna be tried with by the you know military branch in the United States. This is on the same par as what a lot of smugglers had to face in these admiralty courts. Yes. And that builds the next year in seventeen sixty five with the Quartering Act, another effort to subvert smuggling. It required all colonists to provide food and shelter for British soldiers. Why pay for the food and shelter of these soldiers when you can off, uh, offshoot the cost to the uh, American colonists themselves? We're there to supervise the um, shipping and trade in the Northeast and throughout the colonies. Well, you're going to have to pay for that. Also, it gave them the ability to knock on any door and you know, barge in and see if there's any smuggling going on, right? This is important because it's an element of control and a re-establishment of the dominance of the British Empire over the colonists. Not only a violation of the property and privacy rights of the colonists, but to the British point of view, 
um, they are subjects. We are protecting you. You. This is the very least you can. You can yeah, give it's a natural cost that you sh you can't complain about. This it. This follows uh, the Stamp Act in 1765, which will require revenue stamps on most printed paper in colonies. Every colony will react with indignation and anger to the news of the Stamp Act during this time. Yeah, one of the important factors from the Stamp Act is it leads to what's known as the Stamp Act Congress. James Otis, a representative from Massachusetts, calls for cooperation uh, and leads to this. And, you know, famously, no taxation without representation is the statement of the Virginia lawyer Patrick Henry, who demanded the king recognize the rights of all citizens. Okay, now, the violence that led uh, from the Stamp Act was really a organization known as the Sons of Liberty. You could... From our perspective as American colonists, right. you could view it as well. They're a, uh, you know, they're fighting for freedom and liberties in their name, for God's sake, right? Well, these protests did take a violent turn, and it was really a secret organization. It was meant to intimidate the tax agents that were there to um, really enforce the laws that the British were putting in place, and um, to make sure that the citizenry would put into effect a boycott of these British goods. That was really the best way for them to protest against these policies because they would hit the British where it mattered most in their bottom line. And keep in mind from the Anglo or British point of view, the taxes were made because there was a war that was partly uh, started because of the colonists' tendencies to push out west Correct. and start trouble with the Native Americans. So the way the British viewed the tax policy was you kind of got us involved in, in the North American aspect of this war. There was a world war, the Seven Years' War. But the North American aspect, we protected you. This is the least you can do. And then this is what you respond yeah. with. Lawlessness. Subversives. Rioting. Mm, terrorists. All these things could be attributed to the Sons of Liberty from the British perspective. Right. And, and as such, the British are going to respond through the Declar uh, Declaratory Act, which will assert permanent ha Parliament has the right to tax and make laws for the colonists, which is just basically a reminder, uh, more than a gentle reminder, to the colonists that the supremacy of law is established at England, not in North America. And that brings us to the second phase of this crisis um, of colonial protest. And the Townshend Acts are basically an extension of the uh, duties that will be collected, taxes on tea, glass, and paper. They were using the revenues to pay the crown officials in the colonies. So there you're incentivizing the crown officials. The more you enforce these taxes, the more money you will make. So they're becoming more and more of a nuisance on the colonial citizens, and it gives them the opportunity to have what's known as a writ of assistance, which gives the um, crown officials the ability to search private homes on kind of a blanket uh, authority where you need no evidence. You can knock on the door by door in a certain neighborhood and just say, I need to search your home in case there's any smuggling going on. So this we see later on with the Fourth Amendment and other elements of the liberty established in our Bill of Rights to prevent these type of abuses that occur of, a, of uh, that occur during this time period. Exactly. Uh, obviously, with enough protesting, not only by the Sons of Liberty, but by the people within uh, the colonies, uh, Parliament will repeal the Townshend Acts, and it's going to view to have damaged the trade. That's one of the major reasons for Parliament doing it, Slow down. but it's going to generate a very, very small amount of revenue, um, and they're going to retain only a tax on tea. So I have to make this again. I have to make the point again. Parliament is going to get rid of the Townshend Acts because it's going to damage trade, and also it's going to be a very small amount of revenue. 
the taxes are not large. It doesn't matter. Perception and optics are key here during this revolution. Mm -hmm. and, and, and despite the fact that Parliament is actually responding to the protests of the colonists, uh, a lot of other people uh, are going to respond with violence. And this is going to culminate in an event known as the Boston Massacre, which will occur in March 1770. There's going to be a crowd of colonists that are going to harass some guards near a customs house. Guards will fire into the crowd, killing five, wounding several others. This, of course, will be labored as a massacre, despite the soldiers being acquitted by our second president of the United States, John Adams, who actually uh, wanted to defend the soldiers on the basis of law, not necessarily support of Anglo policies. Yeah, there were elements of the Sons of Liberty that were present there. Right. Um, there were, uh, it was a snowball fight that started and stones get thrown and all of a sudden it escalated. No one knows how it started. Right. But as pictures sometimes travel much faster than words and written language, the image, the imprint of Paul Revere's um, cartoon of the bloody massacre, it was titled, made it seem like these innocent civilians were just blown away by these British citizens. So the, as you mentioned earlier, optics and perception was more important than really the truth. As it's, And we still see that all, all the way to present day, right. that certain narratives can work all the way around the world. I think Mark Twain said it, that the truth, excuse me, a lie can make it twice around the world before the truth can get out of bed. And that is something that um, plays a major role into the colonial protest here. So um, a renewal of the conflict between the British crown and the American um, colonists occurs with two uh, ships here. We have the Gatsby in 1772, where the British custom ships are captured by several smugglers. It ends up running off the ground in Rhode Island. It's a group of colonists that set fire to the once the crew was ashore. Minor incident, but significant nonetheless in 1772. And that continues most famously with the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773. Yeah, and this is what colonists are going to continue to refuse to buy British tea as a, as a form of deference to the policies put in place. Parliament will pass a Tea Act, making the price of uh, British um, tea a little bit cheaper than smuggled Dutch tea. Purchasing this tea will recognize Parliament's right to tax the colonies. So the colonial reaction was kind of mixed about these policies. Many are going to applaud the Boston Tea Party as a defense of liberty, while others are going to see this as a destruction of private property. It might be seen as too radical. So again, when we talk about optics, uh, revolutions that start, it's it, it's it, we have this tendency to think everyone was on board, mm -hmm. but there's this tendency to equivocate and kind of be moderate. So there are a lot of colonists, not British people, colonists uh, that are kind of a little uneasy about some of the things that are happening in Boston. And largely um, the separation, the divide, it goes along class lines. Those that are most scared of private property being destroyed probably have a That's lot of that property. private property. Right. Yeah, right. They might have those, you know, so whereas the, the poor and the working class, they're the ones that are saying, yeah, throw the tea in the harbor. You know, so it's really the class divide starts to establish. So um, a good question to ask is at one point, when does the upper class colonial elite start to also get on board and mm -hmm. start to get on the mantle of liberty and no taxation mm -hmm. with representation? We'll, we'll talk about that slow transition as uh, later on. Correct. So um, later on, we have uh, really the culminating factor in the push towards revolution known as the intolerable acts. There's several uh, elements of that. Okay, this is largely a response to um, the Boston Tea Party. Okay, when the the king hears of the news of the Boston Tea Party, he's enraged, uh, and this is really an effort to punish the people of Boston. So in 1774, the coercive acts are the first element of the intolerable acts, 
And the first element is that they close the port of Boston. So if you're a merchant or somebody of the, uh, the wealthy elite in New England, there is no trade in or out basically until they pay for the destroyed tea. This is something that really cripples the New England economy and it is a really um, significant action by the government of England to try and punish uh, the colonists. You have the second act of it is known as the Mass Government Act, and it reduces the power of the Massachusetts legislature and increases the power of the royal governor. The Administration of Justice Act, where royal officials will no longer be tried there in New England, but they will be brought all the way to Great Britain. We'll see if they'll get a fair trial there. And then an expansion of the Quartering Act. So now all private homes are where troops are going to be allowed to um, quarter or arrest in, and it will apply to all colonies, not just those in Massachusetts. And, and we have a small act known as the Quebec Act, which organized Canadian lands gained from France uh, in 1774 as well. And the colonists view the Quebec Act as a direct attack on the American colonies. They're trying to um, impose themselves from the north. So they're extending Quebec's boundary all the way to the Ohio River. And Catholicism is the official religion of this area. So when they set up this government without a representative assembly, the American colonists are concerned that this could be more of something to come in the future. Um, so let's turn some gears and look at some of the philosophical foundations of the American Revolution. And this kind of centered on the intellectual tradition that we talked about in the previous lecture known as the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, we will talk more about the Enlightenment as we go through some documents to get a better sense of it. But basically this, this, I, this, this tradition stems from the overemphasis of the individual as well as um, using reason and rationality to solve the world's problems. So a lot of the, our American founding fathers uh, came from this tradition. A lot of them also were deists or uh, thinkers who believed in God and that uh, that was that uh, a deity that established natural laws in creating the universe, but the role of divine intervention in human affairs was minimal, if at all. So think of it like a watchmaker. This was very much described as a metaphor during this time that God made a watch with all the gears in place, and then once the watch started, he kind of walked away from it, allowing it to tick. If the watch is uh, the universe, that is pretty much what a lot of days thought. Um, they turned to rationalism, rationalism and human reason as a source to solve the problems of life and society. And the two people that you really should kind of note um, that really were the figures of this movement were John Locke as well as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which we'll talk about later. But both will have major influences on educated Americans in the 1760s and 1770s. Uh, decades of revolutionary thought and action will culminate in the American Revolution as a basis of these ideas. So what this brings us to is what's known as the First Continental Congress. Okay, It's a diverse group of delegates that arrived there in Philadelphia. All the colonies are represented except for Georgia. And there's um, when we say diverse, we mean in thought, not in, in, in anything else. But Patrick Henry from Virginia, Samuel Adams from Massachusetts, and John Adams from Massachusetts, they make up the group of radicals. They demand the greatest concessions from the British. Uh, the moderates would include our first president, George Washington from Virginia, John Dickinson from Pennsylvania, a little more cautious in what's going on. And conservatives, they're favoring a much more mild statement of protest, loyalty to the crown. John Jay from New York, Joseph Galloway from Pennsylvania. These are the major figures at this First Continental Congress. So the two things that they come up with are the Suffolk Resolves, which is an, they are demanding an immediate repeal of the Intolerable Acts and military preparations in case of, for a conflict going forward and boycotting of British goods. The second element is the Declaration and Resolves. And one of the things they want to do is petition the king as with a redress or asking for them to um, 
handle their grievances and make right what had happened to them, address the wrongs that had happened and correct them. They wanted to also recognize the parliament's authority to regulate commerce, meaning the English parliament. That was crucial in recognizing their authority over them. What's interesting to know about the Suffolk results and the Declaration of End results is that there's still recognition that the king and the parliament has authority over the colonists. So there's no talk of independence in this phase or step of our American Revolution. So just keep that in mind. But however, despite that and the reticence of a lot of these founding fathers, there will be fighting that begins. As you know, uh, you know, earlier as children, the first shot heard around the world was at Lexington and Concord on April 18th, 19, 1775. There were British troops that were kind of surveying and trying to find out any type of um, contraband arsenal. arsenal that was supplied in the town of Concord. They got a tip off. Paul Revere and William Dawes, who were writers, uh, went to warn the militias in these towns um, of Lexington, and then Americans were forced to retreat under British heavy fire after uh, they started to have a, a skirmish. Eight were killed. Um, on return march to Boston, the British soldiers will be attacked by hundreds of militiamen. These are very, very quick. Um, they're, they're, they're makeshift uh, army men, and they will, and the British will suffer 250 cal casualties plus humiliation. They'll be mauled by amateur fighting fighters as a result of guerrilla warfare tactics. Yeah. The yeah. next uh, battle will be in Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775. This will be the kind of like true battle that will be fought uh, between opposing armies on outskirts of the Boston. Uh, British forces will manage to take the hill, suffering a thousand casualties. Victory in a loss. There will be a moral victory, having in inflicted heavy losses on the British army, but it's going to kind of unify a lot of other colonists in the neighboring areas that this might be worthy of fighting um, against the their colonial uh, masters. Yeah, so with that action that takes place in Massachusetts, that brings us back to Pennsylvania. The Second Continental Congress convenes, and there are military actions that they're forced to think of. Um, the Massachusetts delegation, Samuel Adams, adopts measures, and John Adams adopts measures to provide troops to a continental army. They want to defend what has just happened to them as an important attack by the British, an act of war. And they eventually decide to appoint George Washington as the commander-in-chief in this new army, this new force. And he's sent to Boston to lead. What's interesting here is that we're already fighting the British, and at the same time the thinkers in Philadelphia are still debating on whether or not we're formally should be formally separating. Well, so there's a, there's a disconnect between the people fighting and the intelligentsia or the political elite that is trying to figure out what we should be doing. So there is no policy, there is no or centralized or organized way of doing things during this. It's kind of like a little bit of a messy process. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and, and the, the, the middle colonies, the, the uh, southern colonies, are much less reticent to go to independence and fight than the New England colonies who've already been struck. And the conservatives and the moderates that we spoke of before at the first Continental Congress, they're the ones that are saying, well, let's not be too radical. Let's not get out of right. hand, you know? So the peace efforts, they're right. saying, well, we've, we've all of a sudden had a clash here. We need to make sure that we don't have right. the full well, weight of the British Empire on us. So in July 1775, the delegates vote to send, with the um, objection of the Massachusetts delegation, what is known as the Olive Branch Petition. Basically, they are pledging their loyalty. They are asking the forgiveness of the king uh, and in, for him to intercede with Parliament on the colony's behalf, um, saying this, out, uh, this skirmish that broke out, it was not our intention. 
we apologize, please forgive us. King George III angrily dismisses and sends back a message declaring all the colonies that are being part of this as in rebellion. And the fact that there is an olive branch petition going around signifies to not only the founding fathers, but to the populace in general, that not everyone's on board with independence. So a man named Thomas Paine is going to actually cultivate a lot of anger and, and provide an argument for independence. In other words, he has to go on this weird marketing or advertisement campaign, yeah. hashtag independence, y'all, to make <laughs> sure that everyone can get on board. And he does this with a pamphlet known as Common Sense in January 1776. And this will be published and all the profound impact on public opinion. He's going to argue strongly for breaking all political ties with Britain. This is such a radical idea. Think about the radicals in Philadelphia. This is radicals of the radicals. Mm -hmm. Okay, He's also going to use a lot of clear and forceful language, and he's going to kind of channel a lot of the grievances that the colonists are have into one type of figure. Not parliament, not extra political geopolitical factors. It's the king. It's corruption. It's an unjust laws. People get, can get behind getting angry at one particular person, mm. George III. And people are really going to start to love the emotional um, diction that is utilized in Thomas Paine's common sense. Yeah, you could argue that the, Thomas Paine had the most influence on the movement towards the, the independence. Right. So after a year of debate, Gradually, reluctantly, over time, right. Congress finally convinces uh, the majority of those uh, there in Philadelphia to think that independence is a possibility. And Richard Henry Lee from Virginia, he gives a resolution saying that maybe we should draft something uh, to as a statement to the public for um, independence if we do so vote that way. And that's on June 7th, 1776. Five delegates, including Thomas Jefferson, form this committee to write a statement. And what they do is list the specific grievances with George III and, furthermore, express basic principles that justify their revolution. And that we know as the Declaration of Independence, which is finally voted on and signed on July 4th, 1776. The Revolutionary War. It's officially starting. The Founding Fathers are definitely now on board with the actual people that are fighting it. Patriots are going to be representing 40% of the population. They're going to be actively participating in the struggle against the British. These are people that are all gung-ho uh, for this. They read the Declaration of Independence or have heard of it. They're on board. They're going to be, the largest numbers are going to come from New England and Virginia, respectively. Earlier, that seemed to be more of a representation of the British. Um, American Indians, they wanted to stay out of the war. Their attacks by colonists that prompted many to support the British and so the British promised to limit colonial settlements on the West going forward if they were to help them. And in some cases, the American Indians do help the British cause. So now that we know the context of both sides of the war, let's look at some initial hardships. The first three years were terrible for Washington's army. Up until the end of 1777, British will occupy New York and Philadelphia, which at the time was the capital or the de facto capital and center of the American Revolution. So think of it that way. We have an occupying force. Um, in New York as well as Philadelphia. Why is the war continuing on? Um, it's really because of our ability to do guerrilla war tactics as well as our allegiance 
an alliance with France. It became a little bit of a war of attrition where Washington realized as the uh, we're outnumbered, let's just make this as painful and as long of an enduring process as we can for the British and try and scratch and claw it so that their will to continue lose, um, you know, weakens with every day. And so as the turning point of the war presents itself, it is focused on this one battle in upstate New York. There's this victory at Saratoga. It's not the battlefield that makes it so important, but it's the diplomatic result. It's that this victory helped us gain an ally in France. It's that this American victory persuades France to join the war against Britain and become our allies. This French alliance was really the decisive factor of the American victory. Without their naval fleet and without their financial support, we may not have been able to win. Keep in mind, Ben Franklin and John Adams were sent as diplomats to go and kind of um, uh, encourage the French to kind of give funds to this new revolution. And the French weren't willing to kind of put this amount of financial stake in a war that they might possibly lose out on. So Saratoga showed the French that we were more than capable of fighting against Yeah, no one likes to bet on a winner, and that was the sign where we showed, hey, maybe they have a chance, and that's when they uh, really, their support was helpful. All right, and as the war finishes out, we have victory in Yorktown, Virginia, 1781. It's the last major battle of the war. Strong French naval support. We surround General Cornwallis in a uh, peninsula along the James River. Uh, Washington's army is uh, forced to, excuse me, forces the surrender of the British army. And uh, two years later, we finally have the Treaty of Paris, where Britain recognizes the existence of the United States independence. And the Mississippi, Mississippi River would be the western boundary of our new nation. So you would think after the American Revolution, we would want to quickly centralize into one country. Absolutely wrong. We did try to organize governments, but we wanted to organize new governments, state governments. We quickly drafted a state constitutions that basically solidified their autonomy. It stated that the rights of state officials could not be infringed upon. There are going to be separation of powers within these states. Nearly all states will have three separate branches of government leading them. And there's going to be a lot of safeguards to prevent tyranny from happening. The voting uh, uh, will have rights extended to all white males who owned some property. These are going to be people that have stakes in society. At the time, people who owned no property, they would not be trusted with voting because their vote could be thrown away to the whims of arbitrary demagogues. So this is the reason why land-holding white males um, are going to be allowed voting. Keep this in mind. This is just perpetuating that very same patriarchy that the British a system had just decades earlier. Office holding. Those seeking office will held to a higher standard based on property qualification other than being appointed by a royal ruler abroad. So now the first constitution that our country has is not the current constitution we now live under. It's important to remember the Articles of Confederation, which was drafted by John Dickinson from Pennsylvania, that was our first constitution. It's ratified before even the Treaty of Paris is in 1781. And what makes it so important to understand is that the powers given to this federal government were largely based on the fact that we were fearful of tyrannical government that we had just come out of. So Congress was given the power to wage war, make treaties, and borrow money, but it was not given the power to regulate commerce, collect taxes, or 
the ability to enforce their laws. It was just one body, a unicameral Congress. There was no executive. You know, one vote per state. You needed a supermajority to pass any laws, and amendments had to be unanimous. So progress or change or getting anything done at all was almost impossible. So after nearly a decade under the Articles of Confederation, we realized that things are getting out of hand and we might need to fix it. It's a weak central government on purpose, but we had no taxing power. We had little respect and couldn't pay our debts in the foreign policy um, areas. And ultimately, it is Shea's rebellion, a farmer's uprising, that proved that this government was too weak to last and that a militia was needed to suppress this uh, uprising. However, there are going to be some accomplishments under the Articles of Confederations, specifically winning the war and creating a transition of power from Anglo-English dominance to uh, American dominance. And there's going to be a lot of social change that comes about as a result of this transition. One is which is the abolition of aristocratic titles. As we talked about in earlier lectures, there was no such thing as an official or culturally speaking, there was no such um, proclivity to honoring people such titles. But now there is absolutely no aristocratic titles. All titles of nobility are going to be eliminated in new state constitutions. It will be kind of codified in each of these documents. There will be a separation of church and state, which will be a concept that will be practiced in all states' uh, constitutions. Every state will refuse to give financial support to any religious group except New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Um, we will talk more about this later with the Establishment Clause under the First Amendment. Um, women, despite their contributions to the war effort, women will remain in, in, in a second-class status. Um, despite earlier... Um, opportunities for rights. Yeah, Abigail Adams had a strong contention with her own husband about you will right. be really disappointed. We will be really disappointed if we are not considered equal citizens based on all of the efforts we've made that women deserve it. And that brings us also to slavery, which is the obvious contradiction with the phrase all men are created equal in our declaration. Uh, that can't be true with the concept of slavery also being present. So our Congress eventually abolishes the importation of slaves and slavery ended in the North but the South realized that slavery was really essential to their economic success, and they developed the rationale with using religious or political justifications to... Um, Utilize black bodies uh, to produce a large quantities of cash crops. Yeah, they convinced themselves somehow, some way, that what they're doing is okay. So uh, these are all the important elements that lead up to the revolution and the confederation. Um, Next, we have to figure out how America creates our government, the one we still have today. So Argos Confederation fail, we create our new constitution, and that's what we'll get into in part two of period three notes. See you next time.